And I want you to notice here that we are in Mark chapter 10. We're moving right along. We're in verses 13 through 16. I titled this message, We Must Enter the Kingdom of God Like Children. And I'm going to begin this morning by reading from the text. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Here's what it says. It says, And they were bringing children to him, that's of course to Jesus, so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms, and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Now, what's very interesting this morning is Jesus is clearly teaching us that unless we enter the kingdom like a child, we will not enter it. We won't enter it. But what's so puzzling about that statement is that the Scriptures clearly teach us that every single person, including children, are regarded as sinners. Remember King David writes in Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58.3, he says that the wicked are estranged from birth. So certainly... Jesus does not want us to emulate children because he somehow thinks that children are sinless. Nor does he want us to be like children because he wants us to have childlike thinking or to be simple and not understand the Scriptures. Over and over in the Scriptures, whether it's 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 4, the book of Proverbs, the thinking of the mature is elevated And the thinking of the child is something regarded as not to emulate, something that will lead you to destruction. So the question remains, what is it about a child that Jesus wants us to emulate if you and I are to enter into the kingdom? And so the first couple of slides that I have for you this morning are summary slides where Mark shows us, I think, what Jesus is referring to regarding the child. And the two things are, number one, a child had no status and they didn't care about status. And number two, and most importantly, the child was helpless, and they merely received. So let me just show you the data where we can discover this in Mark. Remember, all the way back in Mark chapter 9, we've been dealing with this problem of status. And it began, if you recall, in Mark 9, about 33, 32, right in there, where Jesus had just explained his death and resurrection. And what did the disciples do? In verse 34, they switched to a much more palatable topic, in their sinfulness, namely, who is the greatest? That's what's exciting to them, not the gospel. So Jesus has to crush this attitude of them wanting to wrangle for status and for honor and for glory in this world. And the way he does that is he takes a child as an object lesson, and he puts this child in his arms, and he's telling his disciples, you have to be like this. In fact, he says in verse 37, he says, whoever receives a child, who's a child? It's a believer who has no status in the eyes of the world, but they're precious to Christ. And he says, whoever receives a child in my name, that's a precious believer with no status, is receiving himself. Okay, now, we see the same idea then in verse 38. Remember, the twelve are jealous over this man who cast out a demon. And the reason they're jealous over this man is because he's not one of the twelve. And so they are zealous to preserve their unique status 
as one of the twelve apostles of Christ. And yet they prohibit this man who was precious to Christ from using his gifts to serve Christ. And so what does Jesus do? He responds in verse 42 by saying, don't cause a little one to stumble. This little one, this believer, is precious to Christ even if he doesn't have status in the eyes of the world. And it was wrong for the disciples to cause this man to stumble by preventing him from expressing his faith by doing works in the name of Christ. The child is the one who has no status, but they're precious because they belong to Christ. Now, this week, the same theme comes up. Mark 10, 13, that's the first verse of this section. The disciples rebuke the children coming to Jesus. You see, in the mind of the disciples, the children are not important enough, nor do they have the status to have a hearing with the Messiah of Israel. And so Jesus is indignant. He's angry about that. What's his response? Verse 15, he says, We must receive the kingdom like a child. Why? Because a child had no status in the culture of the day, nor did they crave status. And he says, that's the way it is for those who will enter the kingdom. If you long for status here and now, you'll live for here and now, rather than the king and his kingdom. That's number one. That's the first attribute that I think Jesus wants us to emulate in children. Now, here's the second one. The second attribute of a child that Jesus wants us to emulate is their helplessness. And we see this idea of human inability really in the beginning of Mark 10. Remember, at the very beginning of Mark 10, you have Jesus arguing with the Pharisees, and he's arguing about divorce. What do the Pharisees claim? They claim that God sanctions divorce. Jesus says, no, 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 God didn't sanction divorce. He merely gave a concession for divorce because he knew the hardness of men and women's hearts. And that's what he says here in Mark 10, 5. He says, it was because of your hardness of heart he wrote with his commandment. All right, now we see the same issue again next time when we're all together next week studying Mark. In Mark 10, 27, the issue is salvation. And Jesus says, with people it is impossible that is to be saved, but with God all things are possible. And so we're going to learn that it's absolutely impossible for us to save ourselves. Why? Because we're completely helpless. And that's exactly the issue this week. Again, in Mark 10, 15, Jesus says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter at all. Notice, we will not enter unless what? Unless we become like a child. Why can a child enter and an adult cannot? Because a child is helpless. They merely receive a gift with no pretense about paying it back. And that's why Jesus is saying that we must become like a child. Now, let's take those data points then and fill it into our message. We had to look at that background to understand, I think, this passage. So I'm going to begin in verses 13 through 14 here, Mark 10, where we see the kingdom belongs to the child. Let's read the passage here. It says, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Notice here at the outset, Jesus is extremely angry. It says that he's indignant. And further evidence that he's mad at these disciples for not allowing these lesser ones to come to him is seen even in the short staccato-like sentence structure that Mark puts these verses in. Notice where it says, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. 
So these little short staccato bursts in the sentences show us Jesus is hot under the collar. Now, going back to the question, what is it about children that the kingdom belongs to such as these? Well, let me begin by saying what Jesus is not referring to. Jesus, by saying that the kingdom of God belongs to children, is not calling us to be simple in our thinking. And the reason I mention that as I hear this passage distorted so many times, somebody will say, you know, Billy, God bless him. He's in the casket. They're at the funeral home. He's 94 years old. He never cracked the Bible once in his life. And truth be told, he couldn't differentiate a biblical argument from the ramblings of Deepak Chopra, but God bless him, he had a childlike faith. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. And that's not what the Scriptures are calling us to. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be what? Be mature. Now, in the context of Corinth, it's very interesting. The Corinthians were boasting in a childlike way in the tongue. They were given the gift of tongues. And Paul is saying, why are you boasting in that? That's childlike thinking when you are living in an idolatrous manner. You're living in such a way where you're negating prophecy that edifies the whole body through the Scripture. And if you keep thinking like that, you're like a child. And he was calling them to what? To maturity. Over and over and over, the thinking of the mature is elevated in Scripture. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, the way of the child and the thinking of the child is synonymous with those who go down to the pit of destruction. So again, what is it that Jesus wants us to emulate in children? Again, they have no status, but they're also helpless. They have no claim on the kingdom of God. They merely receive it as a gift. Now, as I was preparing this message this week, I was sitting at dinner with Little Will is down here in the front. I'm going to use him. The poor kid is going to have many years of being an object lesson. But I was sitting at dinner with he and Debbie, and it was one of those precious moments where you as parents remember where your little one is sitting there and you're feeding them, and you realize that they're completely helpless. That if it weren't for you feeding them and taking care of them, they'd have no chance. And so there's these moments where I'm with Will where I'm putting on his little jeans or give him maybe a present or feeding him. And he just receives it. He never says, hey, Dad, by the way, I'll pay you back. Now, when he's 21, I've got a ledger on all this. He's going to pay me back. <laughs> but the point is he just receives it. That's the way it is for those who enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because we're helpless before a holy and righteous God. That's the issue at hand. That's why Jesus says we must be like children. We're helpless before God. And that's what he says here in verse 15. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Notice Jesus says, whoever. This is a universal condition. And we're going to be talking more about this in our logic class. But realize you could take whoever and you could make that into a if anyone. If anyone does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, then what? They will not enter it. So this means it applies to me and it applies to you and every single person. If we don't become like a child, we will not enter. If we don't receive the kingdom like a child. Now, the term receive is very interesting here, the term decamai. Let me just talk a little bit about the root of this term and why it was so important in the New Testament. Decamai has to do with reception 
typically of somebody into fellowship. But it was often a term that was used in the context of receiving an emissary. An emissary who would come with a message. Now, Bob taught us last week that the emissary, the apostle, the messenger of God par excellence is whom? It's Jesus, according to Hebrews 3.1. He is the messenger of God. Why? Because he's God himself incarnate. And so the idea then is if we don't receive the kingdom, it's because we're not receiving him, and therefore we're not receiving his message or his doctrine. And what's so particularly interesting also about Decami is listen to the definition that the Greek lexicon Lonida gives to it. It says this, quote, Decami is to receive or accept an object or benefit for which, now listen carefully, for which the initiative rests with the giver, but the focus of attention is on the transfer to the receiver, unquote. Notice that the giver is the one who is the initiative in Decami. And see, that's precisely apropos here because the child is the one who was what? Completely dependent upon the giver. They're completely helpless. And therefore, they receive the kingdom just as a gift. Now, what's very interesting is that term Decami is used also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But in this context, it's about the unregenerate not receiving. In fact, it says the unbeliever, I like the Net Bible because it just plainly states unbeliever instead of natural man. It just makes it very plain what we're dealing with here. The unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now notice here Paul says that they do not receive. That's the same term. It's decamai. Now why do the unbelievers not receive the kingdom of God, that is the gospel, and the content of the gospel? Because it's foolishness to them. Because they want to pay for it. It's foolishness to them that somehow God has provided his son that would become a curse for us on a cross. That's foolishness to them that someone should have to receive the kingdom as a gift and not try to earn it. In fact, Paul goes on, I'll talk more about this next week, that in fact these things are spiritually discerned. Now, when he uses that phrase spiritually discerned, spiritually is used adverbally, but listen carefully. It is not used of our intuition. The fact that they're spiritually discerned is a reference to whom? To the Holy Spirit. And we know that because just two verses prior in verse 12, it says this. It says, now, this is Paul, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And so the idea here is that if the Holy Spirit did not regenerate us, in other words, he is the giver who initiates the giving, we would never understand the things of God. Why? Because we're helpless. We're absolutely helpless before God. The believer receives the gospel and the kingdom like a child who is helpless. They just believe. And even that, as I'll show you next week, is a gift of God. But the unbeliever says this is nonsense. I have to work for it. 
I have to do something. And that's really what the battle has been all about ever since Genesis chapter 3 and God provides the means of salvation through the Messiah. The battle has been over whether salvation is by grace alone or it's by works. And any other system other than faith alone in Christ alone and all of that by grace alone is a works-based system, period. Faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, or works. That's it. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says we must enter it like a child. Now it goes on to say here in verse 16 that he took them, it says, in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. And what I love about this verse 16 here is that Jesus is going above and beyond. There's some debate as to whether these children are coming to Jesus on their own or perhaps their parents are bringing them. I think that because they're small children, as evidenced by Jesus, able to put them in his arms, it's probably the fact that the parents are bringing them. But remember, as the parents are bringing them, they simply want Jesus to put his hands on them to touch them in order to bless them. But Jesus goes above and beyond. He takes these little rascals in his arms. And he shows tremendous compassion in a demonstrable way, just as he's done earlier in the book of Mark, when he put his hands on the person who couldn't hear, or the person who couldn't see. He demonstrably shows that he is a compassionate God by putting his hands on the people that he loves. And that's what he does here. Now, in just a second, I'm going to put up Isaiah 30, 18. But I want to show you that, in a sense, Jesus is fulfilling this because Isaiah 30 is all about the great promises of God that one day, when Messiah comes, he is going to reestablish relationships with people through pouring compassion upon them. And chapter 30 of Isaiah tells us that his plans to be gracious and merciful to the people of Israel cannot even be thwarted by human beings who cannot receive the things of God. In fact, God himself is so powerful that he can even turn their hearts. And so Jesus is really a fulfillment of Isaiah 30, 18 here, I think. It says, therefore, the Lord, remember the Lord all caps is Yahweh. That's his name. And the Jews are wrong when they say you can't mention his name, otherwise you're sinning. No, do not take the Lord's name in vain means to live in such a way that you bring disrepute upon his name. It doesn't mean you can't use it and mention it, as you're exhorting and teaching about the scriptures. And so we use his name around here. It says, therefore, Yahweh, what? Longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For Yahweh is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Notice that last line. How blessed are all those who long for him. Does anybody in their natural ability long for God? No, that's something even in his power he enables. But the biting irony here, in the context of Mark chapter 10, verse 16, is that here you have disciples that are prohibiting these little ones in Israel from coming to Jesus. Why? Because they're not important enough. They're not significant enough. They're of too low stature and status but they're missing the point. That's precisely who Jesus is. Jesus is Yahweh, 
of the Old Testament who specializes in giving compassion upon the helpless. And so they've, missed the, they've completely missed the point. This is Jesus' specialty, giving salvation to those who are helpless. And so the disciples are saying, well, here you have these helpless ones. They shouldn't come to Jesus. They're missing the whole ball of wax. That's precisely the point. Dear ones, the Apostle Peter said in his sermon at Caesarea in Acts 10.34, he said, Now I know that God is not a God who is a respecter of person. He doesn't care if you're Jew or Gentile. He doesn't care what your family lineage is, your color, how fast you are, how strong you are, how smart you are, how much money you have. He doesn't care because before him, we're helpless. That's the issue. Brothers and sisters, oh, that the world would understand the profundity of God's plan and the depth of his love. He saves those who are helpless. And that's the root of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is rooted in God saving those who are completely helpless. Now, as we often talk about here at Gospel of Grace, when we give the gospel, by the way, gospel comes from euangelion. That's where we get our term evangelical. And that's why I always want to call myself an evangelical. Even if it's being distorted by the heretics, it's a wonderful term because it's about the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. If anybody asks you, what's the gospel? It's about the person and the work of Christ. That's what it's about. But we always say here that the gospel only makes sense in light of the bad news. What's the bad news? Well, it's great news that God is holy and just and righteous, but the bad news is we are not holy. In fact, we've sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news, and by the way, well, let me extend the bad news a little bit further. It's not enough just to know that you've sinned against God. You also have to know that the consequence is what? It's eternal torment in the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20.15. Now, that doesn't get any worse than that. That's as bad a news as you can have, and it extends to every single person. But that's where the good news shines, because it was the plan of the ages that the second person in the Trinity would humble himself and that he would become a man, so he was truly man and truly God, so that he could be our new representative. Remember, our first representative, and we'll talk more about this next week, our first representative was Adam. And when Adam sinned, we'll read about this in Romans 5, his sinfulness was credited to our account. Now, there are some in here that are saying, well, that's not fair. Adam sinned, and then I get blamed for it. But before you play the fairness card, remember that you have also acted in the sinful way and thought, word, and deed against God. In fact, he says that, Romans 3.23. And if God did not work via imputation, this doctrine where Adam's sin is credited to your account, then he would not be able to act in a way in which Christ's righteousness could be credited to your account. So that's why Jesus had to live the perfect life, so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be credited to us. But that's only half of the equation of salvation. Jesus also went to a cross, and he died a substitutionary death, as it says in 1 Peter 3.18, once for all, the just on behalf of the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. And that means that he's our substitute. He propitiated, that is, appeased the very wrath of God for us. 
So again, by faith in him, we can be in God's presence. Now, Jesus did this by his death on the cross. He was buried in the ground, and on the third day, he rose again. In his resurrection is God's stamp of approval that Jesus alone is payment in full for sin. It's proof, as Paul says in Acts 17, that God is furnished to all men so that we know Jesus is the only way to salvation. This Jesus ascended on high. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and it's promised that he's coming again to bring a wonderful kingdom. But he's also bringing judgment upon his enemies. Now, what must we do? Well, Jesus doesn't give a helpful suggestion. He gives a command. And his command is to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance means to have a change of mind. And remember earlier I had mentioned that there's only one system of salvation. It's by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. If you have any other system, today is the day to repent and to turn to God on his terms and to believe the gospel. What does it mean to believe the gospel? It means to place your trust upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, he's truly God, truly man, as we mentioned before. What did he do? Well, he gave you something you need, namely righteousness, but he took something away that you couldn't have, namely your sin debt. As David said, he removed our sins as far away as the east is from the west. So far has he removed them. By the way, how far away is east from the west? It's eternal. Do you know that if you, if you go north, you can only go north so long and you end up going south again? But you can keep going east, and you can keep going west forever and ever. And so even that little psalm, David, I think, acknowledges that God is the creator. He's removed our sins as far away as the east is from the west forever. That's by faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of that by grace alone. Today, if you're in my hearing, you're maybe you're listening to this, you're watching this, if you have not trusted upon Jesus alone, you are attempting to be justified by works, and you will perish. Today is the day to repent and to turn from that and to turn to Christ alone for salvation. Okay, now, I have only one application point for us this morning, but I want to wet your whistle for next week because I'm going to really pour it on you next week. This week is kind of like a break, okay? Next week, I'm going to lay out in a very systematic way the teachings in the scriptures about the depravity of man and how you and I are completely reliant upon regeneration by the Spirit in order to be saved. And so if anyone in here thinks that in any way they have contributed to their salvation, even in the smallest way, next week I want to change your mind. Because the Scriptures teach differently. But this week we're going to just focus merely on the fact that we're helpless before God, which ties into next week's message. And so my application point for you this week is that we are helpless before God and completely dependent upon him for salvation. And now you're probably thinking, well, what do I do with that? Dear ones, isn't it funny, in evangelical churches, people want to do something, and yet we were saved by what Christ did. The application is to believe, to really believe that you're helpless before God. And so what I want to do is I want to lay out an idea from the Old Testament called chesed. Cassette has to do with God's covenant love. And what I'm going to show you is that unless God had poured out his mercy, his cassette, none of us would ever be in the kingdom. Now, let me define the term cassette. It's a difficult term, not because we don't know what it means, but because it's hard to codify all of the ideas wrapped into it. 
Chesed at its root is really has to do with mercy. But what's interesting is, let me cite to you the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with semantic domains. It'd be one thing to just cite the Dictionary of Biblical Languages, but this is with semantic domains. <laughs> okay, this is what it says about Chesed. It says, quote, It is an unfailing kindness or devotion or a love or affection that is steadfast based on a prior relationship, unquote. Now, that's what's so interesting about Chesed is oftentimes... It has to do just with mercy. But there's other times and many times in the scriptures where God gives mercy because he has a prior covenant relationship. Okay, and that's why I like to call it covenant love, but you can't leave it there. Why? Because how did somebody enter into the covenant in the first place? Well, because God had mercy on them, right? So it's what came first, the chicken or the egg. So the idea behind Chesed is this idea of covenant love. And for instance, God bestows mercy upon Israel. Why? Because he remembers the covenant that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I'm going to give you an example of that. Exodus 15, verse 13. Remember, the Israelites had been brought out of Egyptian captivity through the Red Sea. They're protected, but the Egyptians are crushed. This is the song of Moses. Moses is extolling the mercy of Yahweh when he says, In your loving kindness... Let me stop there for a moment. If you have the New American Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible often translates chesed as loving kindness or kindness. Okay, so this is chesed. In your chesed, he's speaking of Yahweh, he says, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. So here's the idea. God had a covenant with Abraham with Isaac, with Jacob. And because of that prior relationship, even though Israel were acting like a bunch of rascals, he was going to have mercy upon them and bring them out of Egyptian captivity. Now, the reason I get into a cassette is because the only way that any of us have been saved is because God, before the foundation of the world, has chosen you to be in the Son. And that's why he's going to be faithful to his elect. And a wonderful story, we could tell many stories that illustrate this, probably in your lives and my life as well, but I want to share with you a biblical story. And one of the greatest biblical stories that illustrates this idea is the relationship between David and Jonathan. Because King David ends up showing chesed to a helpless man named Mephibosheth. And so what I want to do is I want to begin talking about the story of Mephibosheth and David because it really illustrates how we are helpless before the king that is our God. Now, the story begins with David being anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. Remember Saul? He was rejected by God because of his sinfulness, because of his idolatry, but David was anointed as God's chosen one, his king. Now, remember Saul also had a son named Jonathan, and Jonathan ends up being best friends with David. These guys are two peas in a pod. And all of you that have good friends, you know what it's like to have another person who can finish your sentence, who thinks just like you do. It's like, that's my kind of guy or my kind of gal. That's the way Jonathan and David were. Both warriors, both had a love for the truth, and I think a love for Yahweh. And so Jonathan loved David as himself. And so I want to show you how Jonathan ends up entering into a covenant with David And on the basis of that covenant, David will show chesed 
to Mephibosheth. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4. It says this, it says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now let me stop in verse 3 for just a moment. Notice it says here in the text that Jonathan made a covenant with David. Okay, now the term made there is literally in the Hebrew, it's karath. They didn't just make covenants back then, they cut covenants. So karath means to cut, bereath is the covenant. So you didn't just make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And what that would look like in the period of the day that David and Jonathan lived was typically, let's say you had two parties. In this instance, you do. You have Jonathan and David. And if you're going to cut a covenant, you would take an animal and you would slay it. You would cut it open. And you would take its lifeblood and you would pour it out on the ground. And then what you would do if the one party, you would say, if I ever go against the promise that I made, you'd walk in the blood. May what happened to this animal happen to me. Or you might say, may Yahweh do to me what's happened to this animal. It would be something to that effect. Well, then the other party would also walk in the blood path, and they would repeat the same phrase. Now remember, back in Genesis 15, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abraham. But remember, Abraham was what? He was asleep. So who alone walked the blood path? Yahweh did. He alone said, if I ever go against my word, may what happened to this happen to me in sevenfold. Yahweh put himself under a potential curse if he ever goes against the covenant that he made with Abraham. So you can bet that he's going to honor his promise. But here, the promise is between two equals, Jonathan and David. And so I'm going to show you evidence here in 1 Samuel 20 that they really did cut a covenant in just a moment. Now, continue in verse 4. Jonathan, it says, stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. You know what's so beautiful at this point in 1 Samuel? Is now David has the sword of Goliath and he has the sword of Jonathan. That's how powerful he's regarded. Okay, so what's happening here is Samuel, who writes this as a prophet, is giving us foreshadowing. And the foreshadowing functions to show us that Jonathan should be the king because he comes after Saul, but no, 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 it's actually David. He's the one who's been anointed in 1 Samuel 16. Okay, so we know that even Jonathan believes that David's going to be king. That's the idea. Okay? So what's, uh, the other beautiful part that I want you to think about is Jonathan gives David his robe, his sword, all of these things, it really means that David is part of the family. David's part of the family now of Jonathan. And that's really what a covenant is. When you're in covenant, you've been made part of the family. That's what we were singing about this morning, being a part of the family of God. Now, here's what I want to do is I'm going to put 1 Samuel 20 up here on the board, but I want to set the scene for you because the story continues. David is at a new moon festival or is going to go to a new moon festival where Saul requires him to be in his presence. But here's the concern. 
David thinks that Saul wants to kill him. And so David must trust Jonathan to run interference for him. And so Jonathan is going to be tasked with telling David whether or not Saul wants to kill him. That's where we're picking it up here in 1 Samuel 20. Verses 13 through 15, it says, If it please my father... By the way, Jonathan is speaking here. Is everybody with me? Jonathan is speaking. He says, If it please my father to do you harm, may Yahweh do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away that you may go in safety. Now, notice that section that I bolded in black. May Yahweh do so to Jonathan and more also. I'm going to stop there. That's part of what you would say in a covenant. If I go against my word, may Yahweh do to me what's happened to that animal. And so that's evidence, I think, that they really did cut a covenant, Karathbury. All right? Now, it continues. It says, And may Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, remember Jonathan is speaking, Will you not show me the chasat of Yahweh that I may not die? You shall not cut off your chasat from my house forever, not even when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Wow. What's the significance of that? Notice Jonathan is linking the chasat of Yahweh with who or with whom? With David's cassette. He says, show me the cassette of Yahweh. Show me his covenant love. Now remember, David is often used in highly symbolic acts because he is in the lineage, as we'll find out in 2 Samuel 7, he is in the lineage of the Messiah. And so David often does as what the greater David will do, that is the Messiah himself. Let me give you an example of that. Ezekiel 37, 25. Ezekiel 37, 25, it promises one day in the millennial kingdom, all of the people in Israel will live in safety and David will be their prince, it says. And he will live with them or dwell or rule over them, I think it says, forever. Now remember, as Ezekiel wrote that in Ezekiel 37, 25, David had been dead for 450 years. So certainly Ezekiel doesn't have David in mind. He has the greater David. So the point is, what David does is often a foreshadowing of what the greater David, Messiah, does. And who is the greater David, the Messiah? He's God himself. He is Yahweh. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He's the great I am. So by showing this then, we're seeing that Jonathan really has trust that, yes, David is going to be the king. The Lord will bless him. In fact, he'll even cut off all of his enemies. It's really... I think, implicit faith. Now, he's also wanting David to show chaset, to show this covenant love. And here's what happens. Let me just accelerate the story. 1 Samuel 31, Saul and Jonathan die in battle. Do you know why? Because God was sick of Saul. Saul was an idolater, and his time had come due. Remember, he had conjured up that medium at Endor, conjured up the dead. He had done all sorts of wicked things. Well, he falls to the Philistines. He's cursed. Unfortunately, his son Jonathan fell as well at Mount Gilboa. And if any of you ever take a trip to Israel, you'll go to a place called Beth Shean, and that's where Saul and Jonathan's heads were actually hung. It was a terrible day in Israel. But accelerate the story forward. David becomes king over Judah, 2 Samuel 2. 2 Samuel 5, he becomes king over all of Israel. 
And now when you get to 2 Samuel 9 that I'm going to put on the board, David is in security reigning over Israel. And so now he wants to remember the covenant that he made with Jonathan that we had just looked at. And he says, 2 Samuel 9, 1, Then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness or what? Chaset for Jonathan's sake. He wants to show covenant love based on the covenant that he had made with Jonathan. Now there's a man named Ziba. He was a servant of Saul. Now he's also a servant of David. And he responds here. It says, Ziba said to the king, this is 2 Samuel 9, 3 through 4, one of Jonathan's sons is left. Both of his feet are crippled. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba told the king, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodavar. Now notice here, both of his feet are crippled. What you're going to see is this little one's name was Mephibosheth. He was dropped when in shame the people of Israel were fleeing from the Philistines when Saul and Jonathan were killed. The nursemaid dropped him when he was just a little one and his legs were probably shattered and he was crippled from that day on. He's a cripple. And where does he come from? Well, he comes from Lodavar. And Lodavar in Hebrew, lo means no, devar means word, but in Hebrew it also can be just generally used as a thing. And so this could literally mean no thing, but more than likely in the gloss of the day, in their parlance, it would be a no place. Lodavar was Podunkville. And so here, I want you to think about the significance. You have a cripple from no place. Do you get the sense of desperation? The sense of helplessness is building in the narrative. And the only hope that this helpless one is going to have is what? The king wants to show Chaset his covenant love, his mercy. That's the only hope this helpless one is going to have. Second Samuel 9, 5, the story continues. It says, So King David had him brought from the house of Machir, son of Emil, in Lodavar. Notice here the king had him brought. Literally in the Hebrew, he seized him from the house of Machir. He seized him. How else could this crippled one get there? He's completely helpless. And what's more, I want you to think about how significant it is that normally in that time period, a king would want to rid themselves of anyone who would be a potential contender for the throne. David had every right and was expected in the culture of the day to put to death anyone in Jonathan's or Saul's household. But instead, what is he going to do? He's going to show chaset. But can you imagine how this Mephibosheth, as you'll see his name, this crippled boy from Jonathan's household is quaking in his boots when the king's men come from him. He thinks that's it. It's all over. But that's where we pick it up. The narrative just keeps getting better and better. Second Samuel 9, 6 through 7, it says, When Mephibosheth, that's the crippled boy, he's a man now, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed low with his face toward the ground. David said, Mephibosheth. He replied, Yes, at your service. David said to him, Don't be afraid because I will certainly extend chaset to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. You will be a regular guest 
at my table. Wow. I want you to think about Mephibosheth's name for just a moment. Let me point to the screen here. I've talked numerous times about this term Bosheth. In Hebrew, that means shame. Remember I talked a few weeks ago about the fire pit? In Aramaic, it's taf. But when the Hebrews sacrifice their children to Malvach, it gets the Bosheth vault pointing, so it becomes Topheth. It means not just fireplace, but the shameful fireplace. Why? Because God never wanted his children to sacrifice their little ones in the fire. So Bosheth means shame. And then there's a peh in here, which is probably mouth. And then a mem preformative, which is often used as a preposition meaning from. It's from the mouth of shame. But again, I don't think as people saw his name, they probably thought, here's from the mouth of shame. They probably just thought of a shameful one. So get the picture. You have the shameful one, and he's shamed because Saul was an idolater, and he and his dad fall in battle. And he's dropped as a little boy, and he's absolutely crippled. And to make matters worse, he's from Lodavar, this no place. He has a nothing from no place, but the king does what? He wants to show him a chassette. Is that beautiful? In fact, not only will the king show him chassette, but this nobody from nowhere, a spiritual and physical cripple, is going to live forever at the king's table. And think about last week. We celebrated the Lord's Supper together, and what we were really celebrating is the fact that the Lord showed us chassette in Christ, and he brought us to the table of the king as well. That's what we were celebrating. Now, let's see the reaction of this Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, 2 Samuel 9, 8, it says, Again, he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Notice Mephibosheth, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, by the, to- by the way, it's about time that I get the recognition that I deserve. After all, I'm a son of Jonathan. He doesn't say, finally, that I get this good break in life. He says, who am I but a dead dog? You know, a dog in the Hebrew culture isn't the cute little old little muffy. You know, we have our little muffies, and I got a little Bentley, and we all, they all have E endings, little cutie, muffy, and wuffy, and fuffy, and, and we just love our little dogs. Not so in the Hebrew culture. A dog was an unclean animal. And remember, a dead corpse is certainly unclean. So you put a dog with a dead dog together, a dead corpse, you can't get any more disgusting and unclean than that. And so Mephibosheth says, I am the most disgusting creature before your sight. How is it that you can be decent to me? And we know the background. Why? Because of chesed. Because of covenant love. Brothers and sisters, this is our story. This is our story. Let me show you what the Apostle Paul says of us. Ephesians 2.1, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 2.1, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were all a bunch of Mephibosheths. We were all a bunch of dead dogs from Lodavar. That was the condition we were in. We were all helpless, but then the good news comes. In verse 4 it says, but God. But God what? Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, that's chassette. That's chassette of the king. It says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were dead dogs, right? He what? Made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we were seated at the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that means we have a place at the king's table. One day you and I are going to have table fellowship with the king in person, all because of chesed. And so you see, that's why Jesus takes the child. The child is a picture of Mephibosheth, a nobody from nowhere, a helpless one who merely receives. Now, as we're walking out of here this morning, I want to have a couple of thoughts in your mind as we leave. The first is that as we apply this to our lives, we have to think about the fact that none of us can boast in anything. And remembered earlier, I had talked about how Jonathan and David were two peas in a pod. I regard every one of you in here as a pea in a pod with me. In other words, I think we think alike. We love our doctrine here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. And it is good and it is right that we love our doctrine. In fact, we can't know God without it. But the risk is that we would start to boast in it. Somehow think that our doctrine is because of the, the doctrine that we have, the doctrine that we know is somehow because of our superiority when we have to realize even that was a gift given by our God. And the purpose of that gift was not to boast over the unregenerate world that doesn't know him, but so that we may know this king and his table fellowship. And so there's no room to boast other than in Christ. Now, the second thing I want all of you to think about as you walk out the door today and this week is we all in here, I think, would check the box if we were taking a theological exam and say, yes, I believe in the fifth sola. And that means I believe in the glory of God. But if you and I claim to believe in the glory of God alone and that we're saved by grace alone, then do you believe that you had anything to contribute to your salvation? Because I would make the claim if you believe that you've contributed anything, even if God went 99.999% of the way and you went the other part, you're contributing something and you're attacking to the glory of God alone. And so my question to you this morning is, what did Mephibosheth contribute? What did Mephibosheth contribute? He was a nothing, nowhere, dead dog from Lodavar. He contributed nothing. And so it is with you and I. Brothers and sisters, Jesus says, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child that is completely helpless, you will not enter it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful for your chesed, your covenant love that you've bestowed upon us. I ask, Heavenly Father, that in the weeks and months ahead that we would realize the profundity of your plan and that we would also convey it lovingly to those who are perishing. I pray, Heavenly Father, if there's anyone out there that thinks that they've somehow earned their salvation or could earn their salvation, that you would break their heart let them know they're nothing more than a dead dog before you. Heavenly Father, let us know the depth of our sin so that we may know the greatness of your mercy. We ask, Heavenly Father, for wisdom as we grow as a church, that we would not boast in anything about who we are 
other than being those who belong to you. A bunch of Mephibosheth saved by your chesed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.